Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21, and chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Please turn in your Bibles with me, or you can follow along on the screen. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite things to do is to uh, go camping, used to be at least, uh, before I got old and it became inconvenient to do so. Uh, but when I was a teenager, especially, I used to go out a lot, and one of my favorite things was to look up into the sky and just see the stars. We lived out away from the city, well, far away from Dallas-Fort Worth, and we could really see the sky up, up around Lake Texoma. The night sky, you know, with the moon away from the city, those bright stars just pop, don't they? Millions of them, millions of them. But yet, something we don't realize when we're looking up at the sky like that is most of those stars are not stars at all or planets. Most of those are actually indeed galaxies, galaxies that we're looking at, dots that represent galaxies. We can't detect them with our naked eye. We first begin to really see what those were made of and what they looked like with the Hubble telescope. And then the Webb telescope came. And I just love the images that we, that we get from the Webb telescope in a way that, uh, that we just have never been able to see how God so far away has created all of this universe in such a brilliant, magnificent way. We were never to actually see that until we saw that through the telescope. So in a way, these telescopes are the star's ambassadors to us, to mankind. They reveal to us who they are, what they are, the magnitude. Through their lens, we better see and understand them. In a similar way, all of Earth's people, we learn from Romans chapter 1, can see God through what's been created. They're without excuse for their sin because God is evident in what's been created. But that creation is a bit of a dim reflection, isn't it, of God and the character of God. Throughout history, God has revealed himself further from this created universe that he's made. He sent prophets. He's had dealings with Israel that were recorded in His Word that we can study and see the heart of the Lord. And the rich, rich stories of the Bible bless us, don't they? 
as they reveal to us the heart and mind of God. But ultimately, we are told in Scripture, and we now know through experience, that that revelation is complete in Jesus for us. The writer of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 verses, says this, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful hand. Jesus responding to Philip's question of, show us the Father, Jesus, is very patient, very patient with Philip, more patient than I'm afraid I might have been, knowing what Jesus knew. But he responds to him then to, to Philip by saying, whomever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, as uh, Jesus is redeemed, you and I, filled with the Holy Spirit, are a lens through which people see God. We're going to discuss that more this morning. We're going to dig into this a bit as we live out our lives in step with the Spirit, as we talked about last week, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. We bear tangible witness to what Christ has done for us, indeed what God is like through our lives. If we're living as the ambassadors that Jesus has called us to be, so this morning, I'd like to take a little bit closer look at, uh, you know, what qualifies you and me to be this ambassador, and also, what are the implications of this role for us as we walk with Christ? Let's pray together before we start. Father, we thank You for the precious Word that You have given us. Lord, we thank You that through the Holy Spirit, we see with spirit eyes what You want us to see through this Word. And so this morning, Lord, we pray that as we open up this Word, that You illuminate it to our hearts and minds through that Spirit. We don't understand it apart from You. So help us to see You clearly this morning. And Lord, may everything that is in our minds and in our hearts right now that's distracting us be set aside while we focus on being the people of God you have called us to be, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what are our ambassadorial qualifications? What gives us the right to think that we could possibly be ambassadors for the Almighty God? In 1 Corinthians, or actually 2 Corinthians, we're going to go back a little bit in, in 2 Corinthians before we get to our focal passage today and just highlight a few verses because I think we need that introduction as we kind of set the stage for what Paul is telling us in chapter 5. But in chapter 1, 21 to 22, he writes to the Corinthians, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set His seal of ownership on us, and put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We're told that God has established us. He's the one that keeps us firm. He is the one that has established us as who we are in Him. We have a new name, don't we? 
We have a position, an inheritance in Christ that stands forever. It's not from us. It's from God. He established it for us. He anointed us. He set each one of us in this room apart. He set us apart and gifted us for service. We are all unique in the body of Christ. We have a role. We've talked about that before in the gifts of the Spirit as we express them in building up the body of Christ. We've been sealed. He's put His seal of ownership on us. Isn't that an exciting thing? He's put His seal of ownership on us. We cannot be unsealed. He's put His Spirit in us as a deposit or as a down payment, if you will, guaranteeing our redemption and our inheritance in Christ. Therefore, we learn throughout 2 Corinthians that we are the aroma of Christ to those being saved and to those who are perishing in chapter 2, verse 15. This evokes the images, doesn't it, of uh, the Old Testament temple sacrifices or the tabernacle sacrifices where the aroma of the burning sacrifices came up and was a pleasing smell to the Lord. Our presence among the lost in this world, however, highlights their lostness. Let me say that again. You and I in the world, if we're living according to the Spirit, should highlight the lostness of those around us. Our fellowship, however, with those in the body who are redeemed reminds us of our new life in Christ and our destiny in Him. So it's a point of rejoicing for us, isn't it? So in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul kind of then says, who is up to the task? Who in the world is up to this task? Well, the answer is no one. None of us, if relying on our own resources. In chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, he goes on to remind us that our competence, our credentials as ambassadors for Christ, our ability to stand in representation of the Almighty God comes from God Himself. Have you ever uh, achieved something in your life at work or you know, at school or whatever it is that you knew good and well, without a doubt, it was beyond your real ability to achieve, but you got it anyhow. Have you, have you ever had something like that happen to you? I mean, probably pretty much every good thing that I've had, I thought, why in the world did I get that? You know, I, I don't deserve that. It could be a position, it could be a role, it could be a special access, it could be some honor, some award something that you may or may not have deserved, but it was surprising to you. And your initial response might have been like, you know, walking on a deserted beach and finding a $100 bill and picking it up and looking around warily, this doesn't belong to me. How did this come to me? Well, let me suggest that these things that come into our lives in such unexpected ways are God-ordained opportunities. We can take those opportunities and we can spend them on ourselves. Or we can take those opportunities and invest them in our representation of Christ around us. I love the psalm in Psalm 18, and I've referred to this time and time again when I feel unworthy and not up to the task. 
God has to remind me. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. It was very much like that with Esther, I think, too, in the Old Testament. Esther was the, of course, Jewish queen who was the uh, queen of the Persian, the great Persian king Xerxes. And um, she had an interesting experience. The previous queen, Vashti, who was insolent, was deposed, and Xerxes searched the land, and Queen Esther, or Esther at the time, found favor in his eyes. Of course, she comes into the queenship and is a wonderful queen to him. She is a Jew, of course, but there is a man in the court named Haman, evil counselor for the king, does, know, does not know about her nationality, but he hates the Jews and he's trying to plot. In fact, he does plot successfully to set up a decree to kill all the Jews. Esther's cousin, Nehemiah, which we read about a lot in the Old Testament as well, comes to Esther almost in desperation, but, but really in faith that the Lord is going to provide a way. But he comes to Esther and he says that it will, basically he challenges her to use her position within the court to act. She could have lost everything, even her own life, by doing so. But Nehemiah's statement to Esther serves as a great reminder to us. Esther 4, 14 is where this is found. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you may have come to royal position for such a time as this. In 2010, the State Department sent me, we were in Israel at the time, and sent me back to the Dallas-Fort Worth area and to Abilene in a program called the Hometown Diplomats Program. And I got to speak at a lot of places, got to go back to my old alma mater, Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene, make speeches there and, you know, mingle with people. It was really an interesting time of representing the U.S. government, the State Department, to these bodies that I got to be exposed to in this area. Then about a year later, I got a call from Hardin-Simmons, and they were doing something that very surprised, that surprised me a lot. They were offering to me their Distinguished Alumni Award. I was baffled. I mean, there's some people on the list who have received that, and I, to me, I did not compare at all to these people. My initial reaction is, my, my goodness, guys, why me? You are really digging at the bottom of the barrel this year, aren't you? And I'm serious. That's exactly the way I felt. But, you know, humble guy that I am, I accepted it. <laughs> Tongue-in-cheek. But I, I went ahead and accepted that and moved forward with it. And um, I realized that there was an opportunity to speak at the presentation banquet where trustees and leaders of the university and people that were donors and, and uh, benefactors, beneficiaries, that kind of thing, people that gave to the university would be present. And I used that time, instead of talking about my career, to talk about how important it is for Hardin-Simmons to embrace its original charter, the goal, its purpose for presenting an education to young men and women enlightened by Christian faith. We spent the whole 
15, 20 minutes of my speech talking about that mostly. And it was a wonderful opportunity to, to make that point that we cannot stray from that purpose. We need to stay clear to that because young men and women need a place where they can go, an option where they can go to find that kind of supportive education. Well, in my retirement now, a couple of years ago, I got a call again from Harden Simmons. And they've invited me to be a part of the Board of Trustees. Again, I did not expect that. I guess based on these other experiences, but they've invited me to be a part of that Board of Trustees. Again, I do not feel I'm equal to all of those other people that serve on this board from the things that they've done in their lives and careers. But God has opened up another door for me to be of influence, to interject, to help guide the future and the direction of the university. It's an opportunity that I could not have designed and come up with myself. But He, in His sovereignty, put me in that and is helping me to to move forward with our university. In fact, we've just drafted our first ever statement of faith at the university, and we're beginning to implement that now. So I ask you to continue to pray for Hard Simmons and us as we do that, as we move forward. But I see great things happening on that front, and I see God at work. And I'm so thrilled that He gave me the opportunity as His ambassador to be a part of that, to be a part of that. God will strengthen you and I in whatever task that He's called us for. We are not inferior to the task that He has called us to because we're doing it in His strength. And my, my encouragement to you today is watch and wait for those such a time as this moments in your life because they will come. They will come. So as the veil of spiritual stupor is taken away from us, we read in chapter 3, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians, we perceive now with spirit eyes. We see things that the carnal man, if you will, the man without Christ, the man without the Spirit of God cannot see, cannot understand because he doesn't see with spiritual eyes. We reflect now as a result the glory of God, and we are being transformed into His likeness. And as this happens, again, the Spirit of God produces in us a harvest of the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about that last week, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Brothers and sisters, this is precisely what Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This is what it means to be born again, new life in Christ. We've been equipped and empowered by God to be now his ambassadors, which brings us to our second point. What are the implications of this role of ambassador for you and me? in the kingdom of God. And what's the role for us here at CRC? I think we all agree we have an incredible, important role here. And God has positioned us, hasn't He, with new property up near the 380 bypass, with growth in our congregation, with some incredible opportunities in front of us. What is His call to us? We need to focus on what's it going to mean for us 
to be His ambassadors here. <clears throat> in chapter 5, we start in with our focal passage now. Paul says again, and this again is in the New International Version, 1984 version, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So how is it that the world views people? Let's just take a look at that for a minute, okay? How does the world around us view people? How do they assess people? Size them up, if you will. Superficial judgments, I might suggest. External appearances. Race. Nationality. Politics. Well, that's a big one, isn't it? I go around in November in my neighborhood when I'm walking and I see who's who by the political signs in their yard. Oh, that's, that's red. That's blue. Red, 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 red. Another blue, seriously, in this neighborhood. Red, 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 red. We judge and size people up, don't we? By our politics a lot of times. Economic status. Religion. Education level, which is a big one. Vocation, what we do. And I'd suggest even, even style sometimes, style. Uh, I have a story of a, when we were living in Singapore, we invited our, well, I won't say who, there was someone in our church that we invited over, someone in the church itself, and they came into our home, and it was a, a, first a great time of fellowship. And the spouse, the wife of the husband, looked at Elaine and was pointing at our furniture. We had some embassy furniture, and it was, goodness sakes, it was just gosh awful ugly. It was the worst stuff in the world. Uh, it was the U.S. government contract, lowest bid. You know the drill, you know. And so we kind of had to live with that. But it was functional, and that's really all we cared about. But it was ugly. It was a sore sight to see. But this woman who was a leader in the church looked at that and basically told Elaine, is that yours? And she said, oh, no, 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 that's the embassies. We don't, you know, we don't care if you... And then she sighed a sigh of relief, and she said, well, that's good, because if it belonged to you, I wouldn't be able to associate with you if you'd chosen furniture that ugly. And I kid you, that, I kid you not, real story, really happened. Eyes of the world, in this case, the style sense that you have. We reflect the, God, the God's glory through our lives, and this worldly view that we're talking about now should not any longer be a part of the way we size people up. We no longer look at them through the lens of this world that we've talked about. In verse 17, chapter 5, Paul writes that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Literally, folks, we are new people. New people. And if you've come to Christ as an adult and you had a very contrasting lifestyle prior to Christ, like I did, it is a noticeable event before Christ and after Christ. Starkly noticeable event. But we are indeed new creatures. The old self is gone, and we have a new self. We're still in process. We ain't perfect, are we? 
None of us are perfect. And we ain't going to be until we see the Lord and He completes this sanctification process when we meet Him. There's a man who works in the prison ministry group. I've talked about it before. Pete and I are part of this. Pete Quaid, Bridges to Life. And his, uh, his name is one of the, the directors. His name is Jim Buffington. Wonderful man. Great Christian man. Victim of crime. Victim of a horrendous, horrible crime. In fact, when he was a, lo- a young boy, probably 10, 12 years old, I can't remember exactly the age, but his father, James Buffington, James Buffington Sr., hired men to murder and rape his mother, to rape and, mother, and, and rape and murder his mother. And also, unsuccessfully, he wasn't successful in this, but they, he hired them to kill Jim and his two brothers. Apparently, it seems that this man just wanted to wash his hands of his family and go on and develop himself another life. Well, of course, he was found out eventually, convicted, sent to death row at first, and then he was sent to life in prison. They changed that. But after many years in prison, James Buffington Sr. came to Christ. He became a Christian. Jim always wondered, really, is that, how big of an impact has that been on his life? But, you know, from the visits that he would have, he seemed sincere. And James indeed came to Christ and, and was transformed in his life. And eventually he died in prison. And at his death, when he died, the Texas Department of Corrections did something. They scheduled something that they'd never done before. They scheduled a memorial service inside the prison for the inmates in honor of James Buffington. Hundreds of inmates, one by one, streamed forward, one at a time, talking about how James Buffington made a difference in their lives in prison, led them to the Lord, and they are now walking in fellowship with God through Christ. Incredible testimony. A little later on, Jim's own son, Bryce, had a, had a son and, and named him after James Sr., his middle name. And when Jim asked Bryce why in the world did he use his grandfather's name as his son's middle name, Bryce answered, because the name James Buffington has been redeemed. We have been redeemed. Our sins are held against us no more. Our new life is a demonstration to all, the contrast, the new life in Christ. And Paul writes in verse 15, I'm sorry, 5, verse 18 and 19, all this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them. I mean, the fact is, as we've heard over again, and we have embraced and we've made part of our lives the truth that we were all born into sin, weren't we? We were born into sin. And not only that, each one of us, you and I, have conscientiously, consciously, deliberately chosen sin, chosen the path of sin. And the result, of course, is our relationship with God, with the holy God, 
has been severed, has been broken. God is utterly holy, and He must separate Himself and punish sin. We are indeed, without Him, headed for hell, and there's nothing in the world we can do with it. An eternity in hell separated from God, separated from the Creator who created us and designed us and made us because of our sin. But the good news is, of course, that Jesus came, God incarnate, God as man, to step in the gap for us and pay the price for us of our sin, something we could never do. He lived the perfect life as an example of what God intended all along and then offered Himself up as that sacrifice to to take away our sins, to put all of our sins on Him, dying on the cross so that we can be new in Christ and reconciled to the Lord. Verse 21 of this chapter says, God made Him who had no sin be sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you're not trusting in Christ today, if there's someone here, my encouragement to you is reach out to Him. Reach out to the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Believe that He is the only provision of salvation for your sin. Step out in faith. Commit your life to Him. It's not easy believism. Tick a box and move on with my life. It's believe and trust and put your life in His hands and receive the free gift of salvation, free, but paid for at an exorbitant price by Jesus that we can't even begin to fathom. Be reconciled to God for eternity. So as a result of this ministry, as a result of this gospel, what is our role? Well, let's pick up on the last half of of chapter 5, verse 19, where Paul says, and he has committed to us this message of reconciliation, men being reconciled to God. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We have, uh, of course, in the world, ambassadors, diplomats around the world, their representations or representative of their countries. What in the world do they do? What in the world do they do? Well, first of all, they represent their nation. Whatever nation they're coming from, they represent that nation, its government, its people. And it's important to understand that they go. They go where they can represent to foreign audiences, their nation and their people. They deliver deliver messages from their nation to the host country, clarify their nation's values and the nation's policy objectives, and they advocate for them in these foreign countries, these foreign places. It's interesting, in our country, U.S. ambassadors are considered the personal representative of the president. That's why the president has to buy off on every ambassador, and they are there subject to his approval. They serve at his pleasure. If messages are not communicated clearly in these diplomatic channels, relationships are broken. Trade agreements fall through. All kinds of disasters can happen, even war. 
Our role as Christ's ambassadors, however, as important as these other guys are, is far more important because the implications of our work has eternal, everlasting, forever implications, forever results. Six, chapter 6, moving on to verse 1, Paul writes, As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. You know, now that we've received God's grace, we are beneficiaries of it and have that restored relationship. Let's don't let it go for anything. Let's don't, let's don't let it go for nothing. I'm not sure if that's grammatically correct, but I think you know what I mean. Don't waste it. Don't waste the opportunity that God's given us to now be what He wants us to be here while we've still got time left. Don't waste your opportunities to reflect Christ, opportunities for which you and I will most certainly be held accountable. In verse 2 of chapter 6, Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. But I think it's important to back up a little bit two verses or so to get the context of what he's talking about there in, in that verse to Isaiah 49 verse 6, where Isaiah, actually the Lord is speaking through Isaiah saying, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back, bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. You know, here we are, you and I, sitting here, standing here, a couple thousand, well, several thousand years later, probably three from Isaiah's time, 7,000 miles from Jerusalem, the other end of the world, aren't we? pretty much almost the other end of the world from, from Israel, you and I here today are a direct result of the fulfillment of Isaiah 49.6. God has blessed the nations through Israel, ultimately through Jesus, Israel's Son, God's Son, the Messiah. And we stand as witnesses today of that truth, 7,000 miles away. So, 7,000 miles away, what's our purpose here? What do, we, what do we need to be about at CRC? What kind of church does God want us to be, bottom line? There's a lot of churches in this area, a lot of choices, aren't there? But I would love for us to be unique in our ambassadorial calling of Christ to our community. Well, let me give you an illustration from my experience uh, just to briefly here. I, I, most of you know that we have lived overseas for about 22 years. I've lived in 10 countries in the last 40 years, uh, served in short-term missions, short-term missions through in three other countries. So we've seen a lot of churches, we've seen a lot of Christians, we've seen a lot of people and cultures. And, you know, some of these churches look a lot like we do. They really do, that we have been a part of. Some were, were expat churches overseas. A lot of Americans and British and Europeans and, and South Africans and, you know, so forth. They looked a lot like us. But the fact is, most of the churches that I've encountered 
across the world. Those countries that I've been in represented a collection of God's people from a great variety of nationalities, denominational traditions, racial backgrounds. What we shared in common was our commitment to the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ as our Savior. We shared in common a commitment to worshiping God together in spirit and in truth. We shared a commitment to the authority of and diligent study of the Scriptures. We shared a commitment to building up one another in our faith in Christ. And let me tell you, with all these different traditions and dominations coming into one place, it was quite a challenge for me as a Bible teacher to, 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 to meet the needs of all of these people without offending somebody, you know, but yet teaching the truth. It was a challenge, but it was an exhilarating challenge, one that I learned so much from being a part of. It required extra study, defending solid theology, of course, more study than I have put in in a long time. It required a continual self-examination in light of the Bible. Am I correct? Is my theology right? And I might add that during these years, my connection with a group of folks who, who had a good, solid, what I would call Reformed theology, influenced me greatly during those years and are greatly responsible for me coming into more of a Reformed theology mindset myself. So I became open to others as I was studying. Important, important, because we don't have all the answers, and we're not going to have all the answers until the Lord comes back. We need to be diligent in looking at the Scriptures and studying them and filtering them and staying true to them that we are human beings. We only interpret correctly as the Spirit gives us strength to do so. I learned respect, and even I learned to appreciate the biblically faithful, sincerely held interpretations of other people. I might not have believed them or embraced them, but I appreciated them and understood where they were coming from in this process. I learned new listening skills that I didn't think I ever, ever would need. I didn't know what existed, actually. So I ask us today, as we look at this, you know, we're back in the U.S., and I love our church. I love our focus. I love who we are. I love our theology. I love our worship. I love the way we do things. And frankly, I love being around people who think a lot like I do. I really do, because I think we think a lot alike, most of us in here. But Christ's church, we need to realize, is much bigger and grander than just what we see here. Our challenge is that we have these preconceived notions of others, what it means to be a Christian, and it can be an obstacle. We can easy, easily make superficial judgments of other people that may not quite do it like we do or look like we do, based on what we see externally on, on the surface. We can tend to categorize people based on our past experience, our upbringing, our culture. We determine in advance whether we will be able to relate based on what category we've put them in. I mean, simple, silly things I've seen. 
not necessarily here, but in other churches I've been to in Texas. It's my home. Skin color, the way we dress, education level again, language, tattoos and piercings. I mean, lots of tattoos all over, like what, like what we see in the prison, all over you, you know. Nationality, politics, economic status, vocation. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? It's the same list that we talked about that the world had. If we're not careful, that list creeps into our thinking. We need to develop the mind of Christ when seeing other people in order to be effective as ambassadors of the living God to them. You know, in fact, we do tend to gravitate, don't we, toward those that we are most comfortable with. I do. The ones that we're most alike. I certainly do. Number one in line for that. But the problem with this is this. We run the risk of confusing our categories as tenants of the gospel. And then we judge others accordingly. From there... It can be a very short path of having an attitude of contempt, mockery, dismissal, prejudice, derision toward others, using phrases like scum of the earth, that idiot, what an utter fool, he's a worthless human being, she's a total loser. (laughs) This is particularly egregious when you look online and see people that are professing Christians utter words like these directed at brothers and sisters in Christ. I think nothing, nothing grieves the Holy Spirit more than seeing this kind of friendly fire inside Christ's church. So our question is for us, how edifying is our conversation? You know, How edifying is our conversation when we gather together as believers in groups, in fellowship, in our homes, at church, in our conversations individually with people, in and out of church, out in the world? Every day, my prayer is, and I don't always live up to this, folks, but I want you to know this is my prayer every day, set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 141.3. And we always need to remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 21. I'm sorry, Matthew 5.21, where he says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Racha, which is an insult of contempt, by the way, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So these kinds of words matter. Our Lord has established the fact Himself that they are critical. Well, the Lord is bringing to our doorstep, isn't He, the the nations. I think we can look around us and see. You go in the grocery store, and there's more and more and more and more folks that don't look like us, that speak a different language than us. And that's an exciting thing. It's going to cause us more traffic jams. It's going to cause our property values probably to go up a little bit more. 
and make it more difficult for others to buy homes, our taxes increase. But what an opportunity. What an opportunity. God bringing the nations here. Will we close ourselves off to it? Or will we follow Jesus' call to lay down our lives, take up our cross, and follow Him? Will we circle our wagons and gather ourselves in groups to, to protect ourselves and insulate us from that evil world outside of us? Or will we take seriously Jesus' charge to make disciples of all nations within our community? I mean, will we gather ourselves, gather around ourselves others who look and think and act just like we do? Or will we, like Paul, with resolve and intent, become all things to all people so that we might be influence to some and they would be saved. In conclusion, I want us to just take a look at one of the most grand parts of Scripture. I love this passage, Revelation chapter, nine, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. John gives us here, the Apostle John, as he's exiled on Patmos, and he's having this heavenly vision of what it's like in heaven going on right now or right then. He gives us an astonishing glimpse of the church, of what the church looks like. And let's pay attention to this, because this is important. From within a beehive of activity in heaven, during the great buildup to the day of the Lord, when Christ will return, of course, and lay final claim to all of us who are His and making all things new, he says this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We are a part of this great throng. You want to see what heaven's going to look like? What people are going to look like in heaven? Take a look at Revelation chapter 7. You want to see what heaven's going to look like? Take a look around the world and see your brothers and sisters in Christ worshiping in other countries. Other countries where often they face grave risk of persecution, poverty, even death. Now that we have received God's gift of grace, you and I, let's not drop the ball and let's not let it be in vain. While we still have time here on this earth, let's take seriously the fact that we, we have been given the privilege of being ambassadors for Christ here as though God were making His appeal through us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for this Word. I thank You for the, the way that You pierce our hearts with it. And Lord, I pray that we would leave this place today with a greater understanding of what it means to be in Christ, in His church, and in the church universal. Father, as we go to the table now, I pray that You would 
Search our hearts and Holy Spirit, remind us of things that we need to bring to confession before you and help us, Lord, to, to take this with, with a pure heart, not in an unworthy manner, but in doing so, reflect on the goodness and grace of God and what Jesus has actually done for us in his death on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.